But as we pick it up in chapter 17, we're just, we're just getting different things that relate to God's law. And so tonight, as we start, we'll be in chapter 17, and the direction is the sanctity of blood and how blood works in God's economy for the human body, animal kingdom, and all that stuff. So chapter 17, verse 1, reads like this. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron, to his sons, and to all the children of Israel. So this is an invitation to Aaron the high priest, deliberately to him, the priesthood, and to all the children. So it's everybody. So the Lord says, Speak to them all, and say to them, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded, saying, Whatever man of the house of Israel who kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp, who kills it outside the camp, and does not bring it to the door of the tabernacle of meeting to offer an offering to the Lord before the tabernacle of the Lord, the guilt of bloodshed shall be imputed to that man. He has shed blood, and that man shall be cut off from among his people. To the end that the children of Israel may bring their sacrifices which they offer in the open field, that they may bring them to the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting to the priest, and offer them as a peace offering to the Lord. And the priest shall sprinkle the blood on the altar of the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and burn fat for the sweet aroma to the Lord. They shall no more offer their sacrifices to the demons after whom they've played the harlot. This shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. Also you shall say to them, Whatever man of the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you who, who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it to the door of the tabernacle meeting to offer it to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from among his people. So the first part of chapter 17 here is just this consistency and continuity of how God's going to be worshipped and how he's going to accept sacrifices. So we can't just do it how we want to do it. God has order and design. The devil is confusion and lawlessness. God is clarity and order and purpose. And we need to understand that. In fact, I had a neighbor say to me recently, he goes, he goes uh, I'm really confused about something. And I said, well, that's definitely not the Lord. That's not the Lord. Because the devil's out there confusion. So if you're confused, that's not the Lord. So what do you want to talk about? And he had biblical questions, actually. And this is a classic example where God has an order it's very clear how things are to be done, how they're not to be done. Now think about this. In the culture and the pagan worship of the people that were in the land that were going to be expelled from the land, they just did whatever they wanted, however they wanted, whenever they wanted in a form of worship. They would do horrible sins and invoke gods or a god of their mind to be a part of that, a part of their worship, idolatry, and whatnot. And what God is saying is, this is how I'm worshipped. This is acceptable. We have this tabernacle. It's a model of things in heaven. We have these feasts. We have the bronze altar. We have the offerings. We already covered it, right? The burnt offering, the sin offering, the trespass offering, the grain offering, the peace offering. So I've given you the offerings. I've given you the priest, and this is how you approach me through the priest. And then once a year, Aaron, the high priest, which we studied last week on Yom Kippur, that's a very special day, and this speaks of what I'm going to do on the cross. So everything's order and design. And with order and design, as we look to the Lord well, for them collectively as a nation, a people of covenant, they were going to be blessed to the degree that they aligned their lives socially as a people to the Lord in their covenant. It's like it says in the Old Testament that blesses the nation whose God is the Lord. And righteousness exalts the nation and sins are reproached to any people. Now, they were a very unique situation ethnically 
and nationally a covenant relationship with God. So there's a blessing that would be upon all the people as a people group, as all having the same passport, if you will, identifying with their faith in the Lord. And to the degree that they did this right here, there was a blessing. Also for the individual, now you can't always force a society to do what you think is the best thing, right? But it still came down to each individual and their household, much like Joshua said at the end of his life, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. You want to worship the gods on the other side of the river? That's your business. It's a bad idea. But as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. So that individual accountability for obeying the Lord and his order and how he's laid it out, right? So we have social disorder, we can have family disorder, and we can have personal disorder. We might be blessed to have social order, family order, and personal order. But the more you attract from the multitude, the more it's a personal decision of what you're choosing to do morally with your integrity and your character regarding God's word. So here it says the person that just worships God however they want to, any sacrifice anywhere, like, ah, you know, I don't want to go to the tabernacle. It's a lot of work, you know. It's like we live in, you know, the Kidron Valley. It's like 300, it's like 30 miles to go to the tabernacle. I'll just do it out here. Like, you know, God knows my heart. I'll just worship in this way. Look, grab that goat right there. Hey, Abram, get the goat. Bring it over here. God, you know our heart's here. You know, like, that's what he's against. He's not just worshiping anyway. Like, not all roads lead to God. One road leads to God, Jesus Christ, right? See, this is, you see where this, this is like John 14, 6 in an Old Testament way. That there's, this is the way he's to be worshiped. Don't leave your peace offering out there in the, in the fields of Samaria. Or up there in Naphtali near this, you know, up by Lebanon. In the woods. When you get to the book of Judges, everyone do it was right in their own eyes. What do you have? People hiring their own priests to do their own religion in their own home. And God rejects that. Which brings up a good application for us. Because as we see the church being attacked, spiritually, politically, in the guise of a health crisis. It is interesting to see how it's created confusion. And it's creating a new type of believer. It's creating people who, there's people who are going to come to church no matter what and just say, you know what, if I live, I live, if I die, I die. And they're not buying the narrative. And then there's people who say like, well, I'm not sure, so they're coming to church and being extra careful. And there's people in absolute total fear, and they're going to do church a certain way where they're not going to come meet together with God's people under any circumstance. I just had a conversation with Hector Mora yesterday of Vision Church Long Beach. And we were talking about this because they've not met once since COVID. They've done everything online, Zoom, for five months now. I can't even imagine. But there's nowhere you can get together in a park in Long Beach. You'll get chased right away. There's just, there's just all these things that you can't get a building right now. You can't get a permit. It's really an awkward, strange time for their church as a congregation, like maybe 40 people. But he's tried to maintain fellowship with everybody, follow up with people like a good shepherd, tend the flock. He teaches the Bible study every week, one version in English, one in Spanish. It's awesome what he's done. But he said it's very interesting, like when you go to visit people, some people want you to come in, break bread, and they're comfortable with everything, and they want the kids to play, and it's the normal, healthy uh, human family connection in the body of Christ that God's designed and put forth in his word that has been there from the day of Pentecost. And then there's other houses like, hey, just leave what you're leaving there at the front door. And there's other houses like, don't even come to my house. We'll just watch you online until something changes, whatever that is. And so let's just take a good word here. Jesus Christ died on the cross to deliver us from everything. And he rose from the grave for our hope and justification. And 
He birthed the church on the day of Pentecost. And they continued steadfastly day to day in the temple, house to house, breaking bread. There might be a time where it's a good idea for you not to come to church because you're maybe compromised physically or you're a threat to other people who might be compromised physically. But the general rule and order is not to forsake the assembling of yourselves, but to, as is the manner of some, but so much more as we see the day approaching that we come together and we study the word of God, that we praise Jesus and we sing songs to Jesus, getting ready for the return of Jesus, that we build up one another with edifying words, that we pray for one another, that we lay hands on the sick and we believe God for his promises and not live in fear of darkness and confusion, but live in faith and confidence of the promises of God, his character and who he is, the God of light. So don't just offer your offering anywhere in the hills of of Lebanon. You bring your gift and you bring it to the tabernacle and you do it exactly the way he told you to do it. There's nothing new under the sun in God's kingdom and his word is complete. And the devil's trying to move the church from the confidence of his word like I've never seen in my entire human experience or study of church history. And it's so sinister the way it's been presented right now to stop churches. It's so, if you're evil, it's so wonderfully diabolical, the plan that the devil has hatched. You've never seen anything like this before ever compared to like, say, Hitler and, you know, tricking the Lutheran church and making fun of them and then like just turning against them, use them for his own good and then turn against them or like Stalin coming against the churches. This is so sinister what the devil's doing. So bring the peace offering to the tabernacle. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves. Now, you're here with us tonight, and there might be people watching online that maybe they're being convicted. Maybe it's not meant to convict them if they're not meant to be convicted. But the word of God searches all things, yea, the deep things of God, and reveals them to our own hearts. So whatever it is, it is. All I know is we got to keep coming together, even so much more so as we see the day of the Lord coming. Amen. All right. So don't just do it out there. You come here the way I told you to do it. We pick it up in verse 10. And whatever man of the house of Israel, of the strangers who dwells among you, who eats any blood, I will set my face against the person who eats blood. I will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, and for the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Therefore I say to the children of Israel, no one among you shall eat blood, nor shall any stranger who dwells among you eat blood. Whatever man of the children of Israel or strangers who dwells among you hunts and catches any animal or bird that may be eaten, he shall pour out its blood and cover it with dust. For it is the life of the flesh, its blood sustains its life. Therefore I said to the children of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any flesh, for the life of the flesh is its blood. Whatever eats it shall be cut off. And every person who eats what dies naturally or what is torn by beasts, whether he's a native or his own country, a stranger, he shall both wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean till evening. Then he shall be clean. But if he does not wash or bathe his body then he shall bear his guilt. So the blood, and obviously we say it quite often that the life is in the blood, and we know medically that the life is in the blood. The blood does this incredible purpose of how it sustains the body, going you know in, out, back and forth, doing all the amazing things that blood does. I'm not a doctor in the medical field, but we just know the blood, the life is in the blood, and the word declares it, and so it is. The life is in the blood. When... There in Genesis, the first sin happened, and we know that God covered their sin, their nakedness, that he covered them with an animal skin. The text makes that clear in the Hebrew. So obviously a blood, an animal was sacrificed and covered their nakedness. Now we know they tried to cover themselves with vegetation, their nakedness, that sense of nakedness, 
much like religion or human efforts, and it was rejected by God. And they were covered with animal skin, and it literally happened right around Iraq or somewhere in the Garden of Eden from the fall from glory. The heads of our super race, the human race, created in the image of God for the glory of God. And he covered them, and blood was shed. And that concept of blood was important to them, that somebody, some, someone died, and then they were covered. Now, we talked about this last week with Yom Kippur, but some innocent animal died to cover them, and blood was shed. And there was a, the end of life, and their life was preserved for a long time with their super bodies in the pre-flood world. Then in the very next chapter, Genesis chapter 4, we see Abel bringing his offering to the Lord with Cain, and we know that he brings it with blood from the flock. So that understanding that the life is in the blood and there's an atonement or a substitution of the blood is right there from the dawn of creation. And again, Cain brings vegetables and without faith. He came without faith and without blood. Abel came with blood and with faith. And that's why he's in Hebrews 11 in the New Testament, for his faith and the blood. But Cain is on record, his jealousy and envy and his fighting God. He came with the vegetables and unbelief. And he killed his brother. But the blood was established. And here now, with that understanding for about 2,500 years of human history to this time at Mount Sinai, the concept of blood is there from Noah through to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The concept of the blood is important. And here we get this clarity. So now coming forward from this, and this is the shadow of things to come, and we, again, we cover a lot of this on Yom Kippur, but because this specifically says the life is in the blood, to make atonement, we realize just how precious Jesus is, and we realize how special his blood is, because the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away the sin. And the blood of Jesus was not stained with the sin nature like our blood is. Whatever type of blood you have, we have a sin nature from the first cell of conception in our mother's womb. But his blood being born of the virgin and being the son of God, perfect and sinless. And this is so emphasized that this was the only way to redeem us because his atonement that he provides is perfect to provide a complete atonement. The bulls and goats cannot do that because they're inferior to humanity. But Jesus is God. And therefore, because the wages of sin is death, temporal, physical, spiritual, well, physical, spiritual, and eternal. Jesus, who is eternal, his death in our place, his blood atoning for us, provides the coverage for spirit to make us alive, born again, born of the Holy Spirit. So his blood allows us to be made alive, quickened in our spirit, where the Holy Spirit indwells us. So as the sons of Adam, we're renewed to that relationship with God. We're made alive from being dead spiritually. We're then promised eternal life. We now have that eternal life and the hope of heaven right now in our hearts as believers, confirmed by the Holy Spirit. So we have that. So even though we're going to face a physical death, we know to be absent from the body is present with the Lord. And that ultimately when we leave this tent, as the New Testament calls it, that we will be in a glorified body and thus we'll be with the Lord forever with eternal life. And that is all because the blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient to do that. And that's why the high priest kept going in year after year after year and couldn't do it because it was blood from the bull for their sin, blood from the goat for the people's sin, but couldn't take it away. But Jesus died once for all, as we saw with Yom Kippur in the Day of Atonement. And that's why the New Testament by the Holy Spirit says in First Peter that we've not been redeemed with gold and silver and corruptible things, but with the precious blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. So the life is in the blood. But his blood is superior to our blood, and that's why his blood is able to save us to the uttermost once for all.
It's, it's, it's the glorious gospel. This is the gospel. The life is in the blood. And Jesus on the cross, bloodied and beaten, that's the life coming from his life-giving blood. For atonement, his life for our life gives us eternal life. And that's why it's so important as a church of Jesus Christ to preach the blood, to sing songs about the blood, to have communion and think about the blood, take this cup in remembrance, my, my blood shed for you. It's so important. I don't know why or how it just became so popular in the last 20, 30 years of America to build big churches and big church gatherings and big followings and do all these community things and be afraid to preach the blood of Jesus Christ for salvation. I just don't understand that. I can't relate to that at all. There's other things in the text tonight I can't relate to, but I just can't understand like why you'd be a minister and be afraid to sing songs about the blood of Jesus or talk about the blood of Jesus because it's the very thing that's necessary to save us from our sins. Amen. Without the blood of Jesus, we're... We're dead in trespasses and sins. And we might as well go to Israel and just live there in the West Bank and try and hope they rebuild that temple soon and we can bring our, our red heifer or something. I don't know, but it's unresolved. Without the blood of Jesus, this is all unresolved, but this is the shadow, and we're told in Hebrews, of things in heaven. And Jesus fulfilled this. The life is in the blood, and Jesus gave his life with his blood that we might have that eternal life. Now we pick it up in chapter 18. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. According to the doings of the land of Egypt, where you dwelt, you shall not do. And according to the doings of the land of Canaan, where I'm bringing you, you shall not do. You shall observe my judgments and keep my ordinances to walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. This is the introduction before he goes into a long list of crimes, moral crimes that are sin before him, defined by him as sin, why Jesus died and shed his blood for humanity. This is the introduction to this. So he says, what you're coming from, that's not you. And where you're going, that's not you. And, you know, truly, for the follower of Jesus Christ, we are pilgrims. We are sojourners. We don't really fit in. That's why it gets awkward. That's why there's agitation. That's why there's agitation in the family. That's why there's agitation in the extended family. That's why there's agitation in the neighborhood. That's why there's agitation at work. Most people around us are living for the here and now and how to build some human utopia in the human experience that they'll leave behind when they breathe their last. So just to be redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ and be living for Jesus Christ with the hope of heaven makes us a very peculiar people and a very unique people and definitely a minority. There might be a silent political majority, but the spiritual is always going to be the minority. Even in revival, we're going to be the minority. Because Jesus said, few enter thereby. It's a narrow gate. And I don't want to make it any more narrow than it is, but I definitely want to make it any more broader than it is. It just is what it is in Jesus. As I shared recently with someone, he's all-inclusive. Whoever's willing can come, but he's very exclusive. you got to come by me. There's no other name given by which you must be saved. And so we think about this, whether we're going from one state to another or another job to another job, hey, you, you didn't fit in there with that type of behavior that some of those people had at work, and you're not going to fit any more in here with the type of behavior they're going to do in the next job. And the same challenges you have with your neighbors in this apartment complex in Moscow are the same problems you're going to have with these people in Nizhny Novgorod apartment complex. Like, you know, apartment complexes really bring out the worst in people, right? You know, when you're all packed in close. 
And it's funny because I watch all this Russian TV. That's how I'm learning my Russian really well. And there's all these different TV shows. And, you know, it's always the apartment. And there's the low-end apartments and the middle-class apartments and the upper-end apartments, right? I mean, there's the human experience. And, and there's always conflict with neighbors. We're never going to fit in here. This is not our home. We want to be fruitful and enjoy the journey and be spirit-filled and know the joy that Jesus talks about in this journey, but it's never going to be our home. So we're just never going to be truly fit in in Egypt. And even when we move on from Egypt, we're not going to fit any more in in Canaan than we did in Egypt. We're going to always be pilgrims, and we're going to always be a peculiar people. And Christians, just about anywhere you can go in the world right now, you're going to be picked on and harassed by the government, by legal authorities, local authorities, bigger authorities. Pick your continent. I mean, there's just, there's people that are going to come against us because of Christ in us, the hope of glory. There are people that live in darkness and don't come to light, and you are the light. We are the light. And so we want to do the best we can, but in reality, it's just the way it is. And so, hey, I don't like Egypt. Let's go to Canaan. Well, you know what? It's not going to be any different in Canaan. You're still a pilgrim, and you're still living for eternity. And as we think, like, watching all these people leave California right now, all these people leaving Los Angeles and all these places, I don't blame anybody for leaving this state. We're called to be here right now, and there might be a time when we're not. And we've had so many people move on. I went to the dentist today. The wonderful lady that cleaned my teeth six months ago that went to Calvary Chapel High School ten years ago, she wasn't there because her and her family moved to Idaho, okay? I'm like, that's, you know, good for them. Praise the Lord. And just waiting for Jeremy to start that church up there in Idaho. Any day now, Jeremy. And then, but the dentist I'm talking to, she's like, well, you know, like, I've got friends who are moving to Texas, Arizona, and Tennessee. I'm like, well, you know, we just have people who are talking about the people that moved to Tennessee. But, you know, whether you live in Orange County or Tennessee, it could be Egypt, it could be Canaan, doesn't matter. We're still peculiar people, and our citizenship is still in heaven. And we're still ambassadors for Christ, wherever we go. So it's not so much the external where we're at, but the internal of our heart, where who we are, for where God plants us to, to be while we're there, just passing through. We don't ever want to forget that. Just God says, you know what, I'm the Lord. You and I, we're in a covenant. It's not like Egypt, and it's not like Canaan. You're set apart, and we're always set apart. Now, we get this long list of sins, so bear with me as we read this, because it's God's word. And some of this to us for our culture is very obvious, but in some cultures it's not as obvious. So we read on. None of you shall approach anyone who is near of kin to him to uncover his nakedness. I am the Lord. The nakedness of your father, so this is all incest, of course. The nakedness of your father or the nakedness of your mother, you shall not uncover. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. The nakedness of your father's wife, if it's a different woman than your mother, you shall not uncover. It is your father's nakedness. The nakedness of your sister, the daughter of your father, or the daughter of your mother, your half-sibling, whether born at home or elsewhere, their nakedness, you shall not uncover. The nakedness of your son's daughter or your daughter's daughter, their nakedness, you shall not uncover. For theirs is your own nakedness. Grandchildren, it's horrible. I can't even think of such a thing. The nakedness of your father's wife's daughter, begotten by your father, she is your sister. 
You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's sister. She is near of kin to your father. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister, for she is near of kin to your mother. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's brother. You shall not approach his wife. She is your aunt, aunt. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your daughter-in-law. She is your son's wife. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of a woman and her daughter, nor shall you take her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter to uncover her nakedness. They are near of kin. It is wickedness. Nor shall you take a woman as a rival to her sister to uncover her nakedness while the other is alive. Also, you should not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness as long as she is in her customary impurity, her menstrual cycle. Moreover, you shall not lie carnally with your neighbor's wife to defile yourself with her. And you shall not let any of your descendants pass through the fire to Molech. That's a false god of the land where they offered infants to him. Nor shall you profane the name of your god, I am the Lord. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Nor shall you mate with any animal to defile yourself with it. Nor shall any woman stand before an animal to mate with it. It is perversion. So this is a list of things. Now, chapter 19 has other things. And you think like, wow, what? Do you even have to say this? Yeah, actually, it has to be said. And by the way, passages like this just prove to us that man didn't write the Bible. Because men wouldn't write this. This is the Lord. And this is the Lord saying, these things are evil. Now, obviously, in the dawn of creation, humanity comes from humanity. So the DNA allowed the mating, if you will, and reproduction a certain way. And then the post-flood world, it's the same thing. And that post-flood world's been going on for about a thousand years from the time of the Tower of Babel to this time. And now God's just making it very clear, this should never happen. It's not going to happen. Don't let it happen. And obviously, the, the list is all directly related to sexual morality in this passage here. Now, notice, though, it goes from all the ancestral type of sexual relationships where it says in verse 17, it's wickedness. It's wickedness. Then, when talking about offering up uh, infants, so emphasize, which is usually related to unwanted children. Now, historically, almost all human cultures have offered up emphasized unwanted babies because the the knowledge of how to abort babies early on and these types of things didn't just exist so people just birth the baby offer to their gods or abandon the baby which is still very common in a lot of parts of the world right now but just remember all humanity counts and i just don't ever believe i i just i could never get up in this pulpit i could never get in this pulpit and be an ambassador for christ and teach his word if i didn't believe that every life matters to the lord and I do believe every life matters to the Lord. I really, truly do. And whatever anyone might think about their opinion that, that that life has less meaning than another, it doesn't matter. Or that life has less of a chance to live a good life because of the family environment it's born into. It doesn't matter. It, just, it doesn't change anything. That's not our, we don't, you know, let God be true and every man a liar. It's not for us to decide if one home's good enough to raise children or another home isn't good enough to raise children or one ethnic group is better than another ethnic group. That's not for us to say. Every life has meaning and value. And I just believe in a universe with billions of galaxies and billions of stars where Jesus says he knows the hair on every head of ours right now that there's no accidents with children in the point of conception. And I do believe life begins at the point of conception. Because you are a human being at the point of conception. Who you are is who you are. And God designed it that way. That's why it says in Psalm 139, you're fearfully and wonderfully made. Because everything you're going to be is right there in the first cell. And isn't that amazing? We talked about that last week a little bit. It's just amazing. Everything you're going to be. It's just amazing. And then you're developed in the womb. Now, we know so much more with the technology we have to understand these things. But still, like, what an amazing mystery. 
Yeah, and sure, there, there are all kinds of deformities and different things that happen that are horrible in a, in a marred universe. But that's not God. It's God. God can redeem that. But he made everything perfect. And so we see the effects of sin where there are abnormalities and different things like that. But in the end, by the time you and I get to 90, we're all just one fading abnormality. It's not going to get better. I mean, at 90, you just, it's a loss of freedoms. And something's going to give. Liver, kidney, brain. I mean, it's just so much there. Like, so the law of entropy works against all of us. And it's just so important to never underestimate the value of every life. I just think it's so important when you look at any human being, no matter how marred they are by sin or by physical deformities or things like that, I just, I got to believe there's a bigger plan. Robert Toller has his son, Zach, who has cerebral palsy. And uh, Zach is an amazing kid. Many of you know Zach Toller, a really neat kid. And Robert and Janice had just gotten saved many years ago and given their lives to the Lord. And shortly after they gave their lives to the Lord, God gave them Zach. And, and they learned early on in their walk with the Lord that, you know, Zach requires a lot of attention. And he's got the sweetest spirit, but he requires a lot of attention. But just having one time had Robert tell me his testimony of how special Zach is. He's got other children, you know, that uh, didn't have those type of events in their life. But just to, just to have Robert just tell me once, when the, or one time he showed the testimony, when he first got saved, and they had Zach, and how God just told him, I have a plan with Zach. And I just love Zach Toller so much. You know, one time you were here on a Tuesday night, remember like when 40 people came in at the same time? Zach Toller brought them all in. They all came with Zach. They decided to go to WG, Zach and all of his friends. You think about Jeremy Camp in his movie, I still believe, where they bring up the, the story of his brother, Josh, who's Down syndrome. And I, I've met Josh. I know Jeremy Camp's brother. And he's an amazing kid, and he just tells everyone he loves them. Like, you know, how bad of a day can you have if you walk around hugging everybody saying you love them? Like, it's pretty hard to have a bad day. Like, if that's how you are. And they really bring out his character very well in his movie about what, how much he looked up to Jeremy and how he influenced Jeremy. And if you spend time with Jeremy Camp, he will tell you that Josh had such a, an impact on his life growing up to have a special needs brother like that in his family. And early on with Worship Generation, we did so many events. I knew Jeremy would just have the farthest reach in ministry that goes so beyond most people will ever have. Just watching him with special needs people was amazing. He was always so good because inevitably when you have a big event with Jeremy Camp, there's going to be all kinds of people and people have special needs, mentally challenged, if you will. They, they, they would, they would, they, they're drawn to Jesus, right? Think about it. Doesn't that make sense? That special needs people are drawn to Jesus. Jesus said, let the children come to me. He draws people to himself. The common people heard him gladly. All things are made by Christ and for Christ and him all things consist. So it doesn't make sense that special needs people are going to be drawn to to Jesus, and more intuitive to Jesus. Well, if you're a spiritual person, and you're carrying Jesus, doesn't it stand a reason that people are going to be drawn to you that might have special needs? Well, I go back to Jeremy Camp, and we did like dozens and dozens of events in 2000, 2001. I can't tell you how the last person to leave would be Jeremy, because he'd be spending time with people who had special needs, and pouring into them. Just pouring into them. They were the most important people 
in the world at that moment. And there are certain ones that kind of followed him. They almost became like his groupies, if you will. And he treated them with the highest level of honor and dignity and respect. God said to Moses, who made the deaf, the, the dumb, and the blind and lame? Not I, is it not I, the Lord? We should never, ever underestimate the value of any life. And it's actually the handicapped ones don't give me trouble. It's the people who misuse their lives and their power and their talents to come against God that I have a bigger problem with. And can I get a witness? That's the harder one. Nonetheless, though, those lives still matter. And even though they fight God, you just never know who might turn at the very end. You just, you just never know. So the wickedness of incest and then the profaneness of offering up a life like that. And then with the homosexuality and the gay lifestyle, it says that that's an abomination. So you see wickedness for incest, profane for offering uh, emphasize, and then abomination for the homosexual lifestyle or the lesbian lifestyle. That's the word that God uses. Now, I was also asked about this recently, and most of you know the scriptures, but it's important to understand the scriptures because, of course, this is a defining element of our society in our world. There are essentially two flags battling to rule our nation. One's a rainbow flag and the other's an American flag. And it's just so clear if you haven't noticed that. It's just important to understand what the word of God says because what I think doesn't matter. It really doesn't. My opinion doesn't mean anything, but what God says means everything. So... We know, because I had someone ask me recently about someone in their family who's an open uh, gay lifestyle. And I said, well, you know, I know people that steal hundreds of thousands of dollars from their adult siblings. So which is worse? You know, I just immediately like, threw them a curveball. Like, so that's stealing. That's sin. This is sin. So let's, let's talk this through. And let's get off the defensive like this or that. But let's talk about eternity and what does God say? And, of course, it says in the New Testament... Now, Jesus never taught on the gay lifestyle, but the apostles certainly did numerous times. And we're told to the Corinthians that those who are practicing homosexuals and sodomites will not inherit the kingdom of God, those who practice such things. So if we believe the scriptures inspired by God, which I do, and I believe you do, we believe the Holy Spirit is leading Paul the apostle, and he says that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, there's other things in that list, but those other things, we don't have a flag for thieves and robbers that we're trying to plant everywhere in America right now, right? We have the rainbow flag that is an opposing worldview that's essentially an atheistic, socialistic, communistic worldview. It all kind of goes together. So we don't have a robbers are us flag or like thieves matter kind of a thing, right? You know, it's, it's the rainbow flag is the defining thing. So the Holy Spirit says to Paul the Apostle that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Now in Romans chapter 1, we're told that godless men suppress the truth in ungodliness and that God gives them over to depravity. And that depravity includes, includes the lesbian and homosexual lifestyle. That's what God says in Romans chapter 1. And it says that they actually, they're given over to debased mind, that their minds are given over. Now, if you have Alzheimer's and dementia, you miss parts of your brain. It's a really terrifying thing to think about this, but you, your parts of your brain disappear. And so depending on what kind of dementia you have, you're missing certain things, like you might miss short-term memory or long-term memory. Or Dementia is not just one size fits all. It has different effects on different people based upon what part of your brain has been turned to Swiss cheese. But your brain's not working right physically. Well, God says that the gay lifestyle causes your brain to not work right spiritually. And you're given over to depravity. Then, later on, in 
2 Peter, God says of Sodom and Gomorrah, which is, of course, the Old Testament, which we study in Genesis, that when God judged them for strange flesh, and, of course, it was 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 an attempted homosexual rape is what it was uh, of the angels, and that the people were given over that lifestyle, God says that they were destroyed and judged as an example to future generations to take note of that. And that's affirmed again in the book of Jude. So we're told specifically for that lifestyle in the Old Testament and the New Testament that it is sin. And it is under the wrath of God and it's under the judgment of God. And here we see that it's, it's an abomination. And in the New Testament we're told it'll keep you from going to heaven. Now, how that works out, because if someone's saved by grace or saved by grace, and maybe some people just wrestle with the gay lifestyle, I don't relate to it. It's just one of those things I don't relate to. I don't relate to being controlled by money, and I don't relate to the gay lifestyle. There's different things that tempt me, or, you know, I can plot my mind for two hours. I'm going to get back at somebody in the middle of the night, you know? Uh, so if you've ever been that person, I, I, you know, like, I'm like, oh, man, those guys, they did me wrong. I know what I can do. Oh, 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 oh man, that is sinister, man. I'll make them jump right out of their socks with that one. Yeah, and then I talk, I walk myself off the cliff or the ledge and come back from that. So there's all, you know, the, the devil knows what buttons to push. So same-sex attraction is just not something I relate to, but I don't discount it. And so how that plays out when someone's struggling, trying to go forward, and they breathe their last and step in eternity, and they're a professing believer, that's for the Lord to figure out. I'm not going to try and figure it out. But I will tell you this very confidently. I do not believe there's one gay marriage that will ever be recognized as that in the presence of the Lord. I do not believe that under any circumstance. Now, I believe God has ordained marriage. Jesus said, have you not read how he made them male and female, and the two become one? So we have origin, gender, and marriage from Jesus. So I do not believe from here till I breathe my last, and if it costs me a life, it costs me my life for my freedom. I do not believe there's one gay marriage ever performed on planet Earth, civil, legal marriage, though you can be recognized by Caesar I don't think there's one that's ever, ever been or will be recognized by God because it is an abomination and it's contrary to nature. It's contrary to what God has. Even more so, I've taught this in the past, but since marriage is a model of Christ and the church, the man being the head representing Christ and the woman being the church under the submission, how skewed and perverse is it to make Christ married to Christ and take away the bride? That eliminates the church in that typology. I didn't give you that typology. God gives us that typology. God tells us in Ephesians 5 that the Christ is the head of the church as the man. And, he's the, and that we're to love our wives as Christ loves the church. And the woman is the church and to submit and yield to her husband as unto the Lord who's the, church, who's the head, Christ. So of all the things that are unnatural about that, particularly the gay marriage, is the most unnatural, and I think it's blasphemous. It's blasphemous in light of Ephesians chapter 5 and what marriage is supposed to represent. Nothing could be further from the truth. And that's just, that's what God's word says. And based upon God's word, I, I just, that's why I prayed so hard and walked 400 miles interceding for our country in 2008. On election day 2008, I touched the water 56th Street, and I walked all the way to Los Angeles County praying for Orange County. And you know, Orange County prayed to reject gray marriage, but the crooked judges took it from us, and they did what they're going to do. That's on them. It's not on me. It's not on you. That's on them. And 
Just because you cost a pig a chicken doesn't, doesn't make it a chicken, you know, or a, a chicken a pig. It, let God be true and every man a liar. God has the final say, and the books are open. I have empathy on people for all sin. We all struggle. And I think, I, I think you understand that. But, like, I'm going to teach the word. This is going to be thrown in jail in Canada. Save the tape. Might be getting thrown in the jail in the future. You only got one life, man. I'm already almost 60. Like, you get bolder as you get older, I think. You know, like, you know, like, I'm in no hurry to be 90. Nothing against anyone that's 80. But, uh, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's just, uh, I'm not trying to create trouble. But we're just, the trouble, trouble finds us. It finds us. That's just, that's what the Bible teaches. And, um. Like I said, if you plot how to get even with people who've wronged you, I understand. If you, if, you, if you know that if you drink alcohol, you drink a bunch of it and make a fool of yourself, I understand. Right? I can understand that. I, I don't get this, but I know the devil pushes buttons, and whatever buttons work, he's going to push them. Now we read on in verse 24. Do not defile yourselves with any of these things, for by all these the nations are defiled, which I am casting out before you, for the land is defiled. Therefore, I visit the punishment of its iniquity upon it, and the land vomits out the inhabitants. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, and shall not commit any of these abominations, either any of your own nation or strangers who dwell among you. For all these abominations the men of the land have done, who were before you, and thus the land is defiled. Lest the land vomit you out also when you defile it, as it vomited out the nations that were before you. For whoever commits any of these abominations, the persons who commit them shall be cut off from among their people. Therefore you shall keep my ordinances so that you do not commit any of these abominations, abominable customs, which are committed before you, and that you do not defile yourselves by them. I am the Lord your God. Now, I forgot to make this connection, but the incest is wickedness. Then it's profane with offering emphasize. Then it's abomination for uh, the gay lifestyle. But then it's perversion for bestiality. So it's just this progressive degeneration in that society. And God tells us here that the people of the land were doing all these things. The, the land. So when Joshua goes in to judge the people, the people that are eradicated, God has pronounced a judgment upon them. Unless we forget, back in Genesis, when God talked about how they're going to go to Egypt and come out of Egypt and come back to the land, he said, you're going to come back in hundreds of years because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. But by the time Joshua goes in the land, their iniquity, they they were given four centuries to repent of these lifestyles between them and the Lord. And then they crossed a line that they could never come back from and God decreed them to be eradicated, that there was no redemptible. They were not redeemable. They were beyond redemption. Now, there might be people beyond redemption, but we don't know who they are, so it's not for us to say, right? It's kind of like the value of life. It's the same thing. We should never consider anyone, anyone beyond redemption. But when God says someone's beyond redemption and to wipe them out, then that's his business because let God be true and every man a liar. And who does judgment belong to? It belongs to the Lord, right? So... This is what was going on in the land. And, to, and we see in the book of Judges that they did not expel everybody, but God tested them to have some of these people be in the land. And they pulled up, they came up short. Like they like, ah, you know, those guys have chariots. They're kind of hard to drive out. So they let them stay. And then what happened is the bad company corrupted the good morals and corrupted Israel, and they followed the same pattern. Now, before we close tonight, 
I want to share this. God has order and design. His ordinance is his word. And his character doesn't change. So we might not be in an Old Testament covenant with the Lord like Israel was. But the general principles of God's word are going to always stand. And I've watched politicians over the years mock God's word and make fun of the dietary law or leprosy and stuff like that. Man, that's a, that's a bad look in eternity. Don't ever do that because it's always better to let God's word judge you than you to judge it. But as we think about his word, it's the last restraint of law. And if we think about what's going on in our world right now, the first law that God gives is the law of the moral conscience. Romans makes that clear. We all have a conscience unto ourselves, and we have a moral law that God's put in us, our conscience, that holds us accountable. Even Pinocchio said to Jiminy Cricket, are you my conscience, right? Like, we have a conscience that God's given us to restrain us. Like, you do not, you know, you're hooking up with people that don't hook up with that person, right? You know, like, just, there's just something there that says that's a bad, like, there's just things like your conscience. Like, when I stole the baseball cards from 7-Eleven, and I sat in the car, and I thought, my conscience the law of my conscience said that's wrong, and I went back into the 7-Eleven to put the baseball cards back, and I got caught putting them back. And when I told my mom I wasn't taking them, but giving them back, she didn't believe me because she had no reason to believe me because I had no credibility. And I got whooped pretty good, and I didn't get that baseball cards for a year. But my conscience was a law to me, that, that law of the conscience. The second law, order of law is the family because God has ordained the family unit, the father and the mother, and there were to honor our father and our mother, and there's a structure there. And that's what's called the nuclear family, right? It's, it's the biblical model. And there's law and order in that family structure. And one generation passes to the next one, and the baton is passed on, and a righteous man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, and one generation pro- shall proclaim your praises to the next generation. And there's a law and an order in the family unit. Well, we've had the, the first moral law of the conscience completely destroyed by our society in the last 30, 40 years. We've moved the ancient boundaries. Thus, Evil becomes good, and good becomes evil. And people have no sense of consciousness in the evil that you see in our land right now. And then these people who are bent on destroying the church and destroying law and order, they have made it very clear they're opposed to the nuclear family. Look at all the TV shows for the last 10 years. It's attack on the family, modern family, new family, and it's destroying the law and the order and the design that God has for the family unit. Now, we can do that on our own without help, you know, that it says that God hates divorce in Malachi because it affects the children. And I think we all understand that. So no one's condemning anyone or picking anyone. But we just, you know where I'm coming from on this. And I, was, I grew up with divorce in my family. And, you know, it's like, it's, I have empathy. Let's just put it that way. But that's, but the family unit, if you can destroy it, that's a law to preserve a society. Then the third law is law and order of judges and police enforcement. But if you have crooked judges and you have defund the police and you have less law and order, then you have more lawlessness, which is exactly what we have going on in our country right now. So you're moving the third element of law and order that God has given for humanity. That's what you're doing. And we're watching it before our eyes. The incredible corruption in high places of people with law making really bad laws and really bad decisions that are against common sense and God's word. And then the, the idea that you're going to be better by not having law and order is it madness. I watched a wonderful video of an African-American woman running for Congress in Baltimore, and she's out interviewing people in Baltimore, asking if they want less police, and they're all saying, we want more police, we need more police, we're terrified in our own neighborhoods. 
And, you know, the Bible tells us that Satan is the lawless one and the coming of the Antichrist is in accordance with Satan and that lawlessness will increase. And the last baddest of law to restrain evil is God's word, the church. We're salt and light. And that's why it's so important I get up here and teach the Bible, all of it. Bodily discharge, gay lifestyle, bestiality, all of it. Because it's God's law. And if you put it in here and it's preserved it, we need to read it. And we need to take it to heart. And really where we see things going right now is if you remove law and order, which has happened, then the last, the last restraint on society is the church. We're salt and light. And you know, while we might be unsettled by all we see, we're told in 2 Thessalonians, only that which restrains him now restrains him until the restraint is removed. We are the restraint because we are the salt and we are the light. And we need to keep believing. We need to keep, stay positive. We need to stay optimistic. We need to stay rooted and grounded in the word of God. We need to stand and having done all to stand and keep standing. We need not fear the darkness, but we need to trust in the light. We cannot be moved from a place of confidence in the Lord and his word to a place of fear uh, and darkness over fudge numbers and phony science and evil men who would, and women who would disrupt the good things that good men and women put in place a long time ago that we still reap the benefits of. So I don't know where this train's going. I feel like I'm going to ride at Six Flags and I can't get off of it. You ever see like about once every few years someone gets stuck on a ride for like six hours at an amusement park? Isn't that your worst fear ever, like something like that? And I feel like we're on this thing that we just can't get off. Like we're, we're coming back in, you know, at, at, you know, just on a ride at Six Flags. And like, I want to get off. Like <laughs> one more time, you know, like it's just like when's this going to end? But know this, we're salt, we're light, we're the church. And, and Jesus on the throne he hasn't changed his character. His promises are the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's at the right hand of the Father. He ever does intercede for us. We can trust in him. We can cast our cares upon him. He's coming for his church. He's coming to rule and reign. And however the eschatology or end time plays out, this much I know. He's coming back, and he's going to rule in righteousness. So praise the Lord, right? Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus.